Welcome, or welcome back. This week I teased followers of the Primrose Chronicles Facebook page with a suggestion that these next two installments, episode 25 and 26, would be a departure from the tone and levity of recent episodes. I'll be interested to know what you think of the effort. Oh yeah, I'm Marty Young, the creator of TPC and also your host and narrator for these past two dozen installments. We've covered the waterfront together as I've searched the corners of my attic of memories to offer stories that conjure up their own recollections and your thoughts, whether from the old neighborhood of Primrose Avenue or the era of the 1950s and 60s. Seems to always be something connective regardless, and so I just keep cranking them out. It was clear back in episode one, The House at 4425, that I spoke of my folks being part of that post-war generation of young couples anticipating a wonderful future of the American dream of home ownership, having and raising kids in short order, and launching into a life they could control and shape to their benefit. After all, they had already survived the Great Depression, fought and won World War II, and returned home from an admittedly dangerous world. They deserve the idealized notion of the American family that was being touted as their due in magazines and soon TV shows. For most, and in large part, that was the landscape of what historians would call the greatest decade of capitalism. Also, for the most part, this raconteur's tales have, to this point, shared a rather rosy reflection of life as he recalled it. Many of them were the romps and escapades of that youngster, the consequences of which I am fully to blame. And for that, I offer no apologies. As for these chapters of the Chronicles, though, I'm led to share events and a national mood of those same days over which those idealistic spouses had little or no control, creating definite cracks in the fantasy future that they were anticipating. Three of those cracks are covered in the next two episodes, and I'll communicate their impact, even if incompletely, as recalled through the eyes and the ears of a youngster trying to make sense of it all. Again, this is a two-part effort and is entitled Shots, Shelters, and the Red Scare, Parts 1 and 2. The first topic covered by the standard TPC approach of personal involvement is the sole matter of the epidemic of the childhood disease polio and its eradication through a miracle vaccine. Episode 26 will cover the last two matters suggested in the title, the fear of nuclear annihilation and it coming at the hands of the communist regime of the USSR. Those were emotionally linked in the minds of Hoosiers and beyond, and thus will be intertwined in that telling. So, let's get at it. In truth, the rise of infantile paralysis, as polio was clinically called, had its roots many years earlier and was already woven into the fabric of feared childhood diseases that raised its ugly head all too often in the time since the turn of the 20th century. But it seemed to come to the forefront when President Franklin D. Roosevelt acknowledged his contracting of the disease, which left him paralyzed, unable to walk, and basically confined to a wheelchair. After several misdiagnoses, it was determined that his muscular weakness, loss of mobility, and the pains in his extremities, especially legs, were the result of his having contracted polio. 
his overcoming of those disabilities with a cheerful, personable, and indomitable spirit ultimately led him to the White House and the presidency of the United States. From there, he guided the nation out of the Great Depression and through the horrors of World War II. This endeared him to many in the American populace and also cast a light on what was considered till then a childhood disease. His figure and his speech rallied an entire nation in many different ways, including a national effort to raise the money necessary, to fund the medical research necessary, to eradicate polio from the lives of mainly children and young adults in a single generation. Suddenly, a beloved national figure was also the poster child for a feared and seemingly uncurable malady. The efforts would be directed not through a government agency, but a non-profit organization called the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis. President Roosevelt promoted the fundraising efforts and was joined by Hollywood and Broadway celebrities to host balls and concerts. But when comedian Eddie Cantor suggested in a broadcast that it could be a successful national effort if everyone, even children, would give their dimes to the cause. Polio would be wiped from the American landscape and beyond, and the effort took on a new level of involvement. As a result, a new name caught on among the populace, the March of Dimes. To that point, polio, as it had come to be called, was scary. It was connected to braces and iron lungs and even early death. There was no cure, only treatments to minimize conditions and the pain from them. That was the experience that had stayed with my mom and her family from her own childhood. Dorothy Smith was the middle of three children born to Grant and Diddy Smith. She had an older brother, Weber, and a younger brother, Bill, and a little fox terrier named Rags. That was the way she always described the home in which she had grown up, always including Rags. She had many stories about that terrier and about the escapades of her and my Uncle Bill. Very seldom, though, did Weber make his way into the stories. The reason? At an early age, he had contracted polio, quickly become bedfast, and very shortly thereafter, passed away. He was two years mom's senior. A lack of clarity as to how the disease was caught and transmitted actually kept him away from his family. Legs encased in braces, bedfast with breathing issues for a lengthy period of time and fear of giving it to his brother and sister as he convalesced, kept him out of the house and in a group facility connected with a local hospital. Unfortunately, he passed away in that hospital without seeing them before he died. With that personal background, as Dorothy, the vivacious, roller-skating, dancing young adult, married and became a mother herself, the reminder of the grief that had swept through her childhood family, parents, little brother Bill, and even Rags, prompted her to get to work in that effort however she could. She often spoke of her March of Dimes can that sat on her bedroom dresser into which she plunked the silver ten-cent pieces and ever so often delivered to the foundation headquarters, picking up another. And as a young mother and wife, she had two cans in the kitchen. One container collected dimes received from grocery shopping, and that was for the March of Dimes effort. Another can gathered the pennies, nickels, and quarters that would be recycled for future shopping trips. 
Mom also saw an opportunity to stay active in the ongoing campaign once I began in kindergarten. She became the March of Dimes chair lady for our school, distributing coin booklets to every child in every classroom. They could hold maybe $2 in dimes, and kids were encouraged to fill them and return them to the school office. My mother, in turn, would weekly gather those booklets turned in, bundle them, and deliver them back, hopefully filled to the headquarters, and pick up a new stack of empty booklets to again be distributed. The events surrounding my Uncle Weber's passing had stayed with her, prompting such philanthropic efforts, but it also affected her raising of me. Early on, when I was an only child, and even after Nancy was born, we were kept to some degree isolated. Not so much from children of our parents' friends, but definitely from the general public. We didn't go to parks or public pools, even in the hot and humid summer months, most of which had their own periods of closure anyway. And the same was true of movie houses and even some of the schools for a time. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? By the earliest years of the 1950s, Polio had reached epidemic proportions across the U.S. and around the world. Many mothers, not just mine, did not want to jeopardize the long-term health for a random afternoon in the outdoors that contained who knew what kind of bugs carrying who knew what possible viruses. In those early days, it was thought polio might be transmitted by mosquitoes, so local governmental agencies began their own preventative campaigns. We were still living at the Capitol House. See episode 10, The Capitol Avenue Years. When I remember Mom and Dad readying the house for an announced next day's spray. While I usually went to the backyard gate to watch the garbage men do their job once a week, that day, the only vehicle coming down the alley was a truck with hoses and sprayers attached to a huge tank. My folks had put towels around all the doors and windows and closed the house down so that the spray didn't get in. And we hunkered down for a time immediately before and after the treatment took place. You see, the tank contained the chemical DDT, routinely used in swamps and wetlands to kill mosquito larvae, initially for malaria control. But now, maybe it would work on the virus that was attacking the children of 1950s America. They sprayed both sides of the alley, and in between garages, and up the sidewalks into backyards, anything they could reach with the hoses. Thus, we were for a very brief time quarantined, for our own good and our parents' peace of mind. They were doing what they could, even if what they could might not be the ticket. It was not. In fact, 20 years later in the early 70s, DDT was banned by federal health agencies as being a carcinogen, adversely affecting humans and animals itself. Schools in the Indianapolis Public School District also took extraordinary measures in those early days of that middle decade to make their facilities sanitary and expanded the force of nurses at all schools, especially elementary, since that was the part of the population polio seemed to hit the hardest. In that environment, even though hesitant, Mom enrolled me to begin school, and I attended most days of my kindergarten and first grade years at James Wickham Riley School Number 43. 
All the while, the sickness that was affecting the youngest Americans continued to rage at or near epidemic proportions, and no one knew how to wage war effectively against it. Even as we moved to Primrose in 1955, Mom and Dad kept one hopeful eye on reports of tests that were being done. Nearly 2 million school-aged children were involved in the trials. Half were inoculated with a promising vaccine that could result in a possible immunity to this debilitating condition. The other half received a placebo. The results would be tracked, and that could be huge if found affirming. And sure enough, in April of 1955, a doctor by the name of Jonas Salk announced that the trials were over. A vaccine could indeed prevent the disease in 90% of all who got the full series of shots. And we were watching the evening news, as were most homes, to see and hear President Eisenhower in tears, thanking Dr. Salk and announcing the plan to have all school-age children receive the first of four doses in schools across the nation as soon as that month, thanks to the contribution of countless Americans with countless dimes. Another war was on the verge of being won. Indiana schools would benefit from the fact that the Indianapolis pharmaceutical house Eli Lilly would be one of only five companies nationwide to produce vials of the vaccine, making children of the Hoosier State among the first to be inoculated. On the personal level, We just moved on to Primrose, and I was enrolled in School 91's second grade. And one of my first initiations into my new class would be getting the shot with all my other classmates. What I didn't know until just days before was that the school nurse would administer the doses from her office off the main floor hall with the help of several room moms, and that included mine. I couldn't believe it. In addition to me in second grade, Nancy had begun her school career in half-day kindergarten, and David was less than two and in a stroller. But her joy at the vanquishing of a disease that had taken her brother's life prompted an unparalleled act of volunteerism from her for this singular moment. She would come to school that day with my little brother in tow and help, however, to make this treatment a reality for the sake of the children of School 91, and that included hers. So the day came. I guess it was orderly. Most, if not all the kids, arrived in their classrooms with permission forms to receive the first of the four doses of the Salk vaccine. They were collected by the teacher, alphabetized and delivered to the nurse's station ahead of the individual classes that were being lined up down the hall by class in alphabetical order, lowest grade to highest. My class, Miss Worth's second grade class, made their way to the main floor hallway when the time came. We hugged the tile-lined walls, and it seemed that there were at least three or four classes already awaiting their turn kindergarten, then first, then second, and so on. In hindsight, I'm not sure that was the wisest. The wails of anxious, even terrified students, anticipating the poke awaiting the youngest of the School 91 population, echoed down the hall and fell upon the ears of the dozens of upcoming inoculants behind them. And to make matters of the moment worse, 
it didn't seem like the line was moving, causing the apprehension to spread down the line as kids had a chance to think on what would soon be upon them. Now, we all had had our childhood shots as proof of immunization for diphtheria, pertussis, which was measles, and tetanus, as well as skin scratch punctures to vaccinate against smallpox, so we really weren't rookies when it came to shots. I have no idea how the others had handled their respective experiences in the office of their family doctor. To their defense, this was new, and this was being done by a stranger, and who knew how big this new needle had to be to administer the new drug. The wailing, in the meantime, seemed to crescendo with still little or no movement of the line, and with sniffles and tears beginning to appear in the noses and eyes of my new classmates, who should come walking up the line from the nurse's station but my mother pushing my brother Dave strapped in his stroller. Even in my limited awareness as a seven-year-old, I did not think this could go well, but perhaps it could. Maybe Nancy was having a problem with the rest of her kindergarten class, and Mom decided that she'd postpone the whole family ordeal and do it in the confines of our family doctor, Dr. Sexton's office. I should be so lucky. No mom had an idea. A marvelous, wonderful idea, she thought. I would come with her, back to the front of the line, and as the brave little soldier she knew I could be, step forward, get my shot without hesitation, not even a whimper, and show those kids how easy it could be. It could be my shining moment of positive recognition by the kids of a new school who were still trying to decide what to make of this gangly kid who was taller even than their teacher. Now, I could think of a hundred different reasons why this was a terrible idea, chief of which I didn't want to. Long story short, though, I looked left and right and noticed other kids were watching to see what I'd do, so I gulped and dutifully followed Mother and the stroller back to the nurse. Now, I didn't skip. I did not even walk quickly. I did not whistle a happy tune. You see, I was a late bloomer when it came to whistling, too. But neither did I whimper or drag my feet. I was just going to do it. Soon I arrived at the head of the line of sniveling little babies who were afraid of a little stick in their arms. You see, I was by now quite condescending toward those who needed me to give them a boost at the expense of my own martyrdom. I was already thinking of how many ways I'd milk this for all it was worth. Mom introduced me to school nurse, spoke of how courageous I was in stepping forward. In truth, I was none of that. I'd only considered the ramifications if I threw a bigger fit when opposing my mother's wishes and chose the lesser of two evils. Anyway, the nurse seemed thrilled to possibly have some breakthrough in the logjam that the Salk vaccine had created. Confirming that I was indeed Dorothy and Don Young's son, matching the permission signatures to inoculate the paper she held. I mean, my mother was right there. What was the alternative? The mama just grabbed some kid and threatened him within an inch of his life to play along? Oh no, I was Martin Scott Young. And my parents, one of which was present, 
were agreeing to allow a medical officer to inject the appropriate antibodies into my bloodstream as an immunization against the worst assault on the health of children since the development of vaccines. I can't say I remember it being overly painful. After my upper left arm had been swabbed with rubbing alcohol, I do recall looking out of the corner of my eye, even after being told to look straight ahead. And for that brief instant, I thought I saw about a six-inch needle capable of puncturing me and maybe going out the other side of my scrawny arm. That may have been the way that the overhead light hit it, though, and in actuality, it really hadn't hurt much at all. Most of the AM kindergarten had pressed into the doorway, including my sister Nancy, and witnessed my moment of extreme bravery. And then it was over. Applause rose from my mom and even the other volunteers. A quick band-aid was applied. I was given my choice of sucker flavors to take back into line. In fact, I got two, just because. The line began to move following my act of heroism, not perfectly, not without additional wails and tears, but in some small part, I had helped launch the School 91 immunization drive for the polio vaccine. I returned to my class in the hall, now an expert on all things ahead for the others in the area of inoculations. Some questions were straightforward. Did it hurt? How long was the needle? What colors of suckers did they have? Where did I get the shot in the butt or the arm? Others had a more philosophical question. Did I think it worked? To that one, I had no idea, and in truth, I wondered it afresh every time a new round of shots came up on the calendar. I'm sure my folks, especially Mom, wondered the same. As it turned out, the discovery by Dr. Jonas Salk was a miracle of medicine. As different generations of children began getting the antivirus or its improved derivatives in recommended doses and frequency, polio became a disease of the past. Those were unusual times and extraordinary situations that prompted a total national effort, and it had all happened at the encouragement of a nation's political leader, but occurred by the selfless efforts of a grassroots movement of men who had only years earlier made self-sacrifices to serve in the armed forces, and moms who became the frontline soldiers in a war of a totally different type, but life-saving for many, nonetheless. I can say proudly, my folks, particularly my mother, assumed her place in the battlefield. As a result of millions of dimes and hours of research, a health campaign was launched that was so successful that by the end of the decade, a debilitating condition for tens of thousands of children and the killer of thousands more was in the rearview mirror for a nation, once wondering if a future void of hope might be in front of them. And so, the matter of the shots in the episodes entitled Shots, Shelters, and the Red Scare comes to a close. Next week, we take a look at the only thing that more Americans feared than perhaps the polio epidemic in that same era. It was the fear of nuclear annihilation at the hands of the communist regime that ruled the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. You may know the historical facts. In episode 26, 
These facts will serve only as a landscape for viewing how lives, especially in my old neighborhood, would face the uncertainties and react to the hysteria. Admittedly, Primrose was a bubble of sorts. My hope is to offer treatment that will allow you, the listener, a backdrop into which you may lay your own recollections. I hope it will offer a valuable balance of viewing to a time past that is too often either overly maligned or overly idealized, dependent on the observer. All I can promise is I will take you back once again to my little corner of that world, Primrose Lane, or Primrose Avenue, and let you assess its charm or lack of the same yourself. I do hope you'll be back next week. Blessings.